Welcome, everyone, to our June episode of Silas Speaks, Silas' monthly podcast, which is your window into what is happening at Sila and the securities and insurance licensing industry. Silas Speaks is brought to you by Rhodes Online and Sila, and I am Alistair Yu. And I'm Diana Ivey, and our guest today is John Schobel, who is the Chief Executive Officer of RegEd. We have a great discussion with John about his very interesting journey from the art world to the insurance and securities industry. Absolutely. It was a great conversation. I'd like to thank John for his time. Um, it's a really great conversation for all you listeners, and it's something that you don't want to miss. But that said, before we get into our conversation with John, let me go over some of the things that are coming up on the SILA calendar in June. On Thursday, June 16th, there will be a SILA education and training subgroup meeting, a SETS webinar. It's at 2 p.m. on the 16th. And the webinar will be Talk to Your Audience, Changing the Conversation Around Women in Insurance. Also, on Thursday, June 23rd at 1 p.m. Eastern, the SILA Texas chapter will be holding a meeting, Go Texas. So make sure you can attend that if you live in Texas or in the area. That said, Diana, uh, what's going on that our readers should be or our listeners should be aware of in (laughs) the uh, compliance world? Yeah, I'll just mention a few things that are, um, you know, definitely reading worthy. And they should go into the SILA.org website and look for more um, because there's always plenty. But I'll mention a few um, the first one I'll mention is California. Um, they issued a bulletin earlier this month, well, earlier in May, about um, it just was an update to their planned conversion of their producer license types and qualifications. So there's some movement updates and some other detail in there that um, anybody who is concerned with producer licensing in California should definitely take a look at that because it's, it's quite detailed. Um, one I thought would be mentioned just because it's so rare to have news like this, but Minnesota um, has determined that um, they are going to, lo- they have lowered their technology surcharge for all insurance producer license applications. That includes all license types, renewals, reinstatements. So they actually have reduced their fee, which is highly unusual. So thank you, Minnesota. Thank you, Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the last one I'll mention is um, a very detailed bulletin from North Carolina, and it has to do with our adjusting friends. So really anybody who's an adjusting company or firm or an insurer that uh, employs adjusters really should Definitely look this one up because it has very detailed information in there about how companies and adjusters are to behave going forward this year in North Carolina if a catastrophe were to happen. Um, There's detail in here about proper identification that will be required from the adjusters. There's even a template that they're to use to make the ID. There's some course um, suggested coursework that should be done. And there's a host of other um, really important information if this is your business. So definitely take a look at that. And there's many other things, Alistair, but these are the three I thought I'd highlight today. Sure. And our listeners know that for more information about the calendar and for, uh, you know, these compliance updates from the states, they can go to sala.org and read more about them, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So with that, uh, I guess without further ado, uh, let's get to our conversation with John. All right. Can't wait. So it's our pleasure to welcome to the show, John Schobel, Chief Executive Officer of Reged. John, how are you doing today? I'm very well. Nice to see you, Alistair, and you too, Diana. Yeah, great to have you on, John. Nice to see you. Great. You know, happy that you're on. I actually believe this is a podcast first for us on, on Side of Speaks. We have three New Yorkers on the same pod. How about that? that that's the second time, Alistair. Remember oh, the second, had... <laughs> <laughs> the second time. Diana is our historian. She remembers these things. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> but but what I do believe, and, and not to read it, it is the first time that we have two participants or two two people that have been went to the same university. And I believe, John, that you and Diane are both NYU alum. Shout out, yeah. go Violets. <laughs> yes. We say all the time, isn't it? Which yes. Kind of school. Yeah, good times. It was the anti-school, right, Diane? It was anti-college when I went. There. It was. It was totally not the college experience. I mean, at least for me, right? I was a commuter. Did you commute, John, or did no, you? I didn't. But it was very close to home. I grew up in Maplewood, New Jersey, not too far outside of the city. So it was close enough to feel like you were, you had a, a toehold back to where you grew up. But I mean, obviously going from the burbs to living in Manhattan at the age of what, 18. Uh. <laughs> crazy. And I remember when I was a kid, there, I think her name was. I can't remember. Maybe it was Irma Bombeck put out a guide, like the insider's guide to college. And I was reading about all these schools because everyone was applying to school. And they wrote about New York, about NYU, that sending NYU, sending your kid to NYU is like weaning a baby on heroin. (laughs) I was like, reading that as a 16, 17 year old, I was like, well, that is terrifying. But I now, in retrospect, over at age 53, I know exactly what they meant, right? And what, what she meant was, once you go there, it's very hard to think of anywhere else as home, right, for me. Like, I can't think of anywhere else but New York as an actual home, even though I haven't spent very much time there since my 20s, right, just on and off. Yeah, because of work. NYU was um commuter experience for me. Um, so because New York City was my home, so I just felt like I never left home. <laughs> so until I actually moved out of the city, and uh, although always continued to work in the city, so yes, but quite an experience. experience. But I had that experience when I went from from undergraduate into work in graduate school because I had started working, and this is one of the great things that New York offers, right, to a young person is that I had a career job by the time I was 20, like a junior in college, in a museum. This was my first career, and it was super exciting. And all I wanted to do was work more. And I just, like, I didn't go to my graduation because I had to work. And, like, I just had this great career out of nowhere at 21. And that's what New York does to you. It makes you an adult so fast for which I think when you're a kid, that's what you want, right? But in retrospect, are you, you know, you're you're living the life of an adult, but it it's not you don't exactly have the full uh brain maturation that an adult has. That's true. Eventually I'm waiting, I'm waiting for my full brain maturation. <laughs> I was gonna say eventually it'll come. <laughs> Tell us about that journey though, John. Um, your professional journey. 
It's my pleasure. Well, we, um, it's completely, it's completely improbable. And I do have, you know, I do have to tell this story in my professional life all the time. So I did go to, I did go to NYU and I studied um, the history of art, which is a, a pretty excellent program at NYU. Yes. And I did that graduate and undergraduate. And then I did that for graduate school also and worked in a museum, the National Academy Museum, which was at 89th and 5th. And then I went to work at a um, at a school of fine arts, a graduate school of fine arts. I was assistant director of the New York Academy of Art, which is down in Tribeca. So wow. this was like a super cool career in your early 20s to have. And I learned an enormous amount, like everything I think that I still know about management and positioning and publicity and marketing and I don't just everything that I know, period, I think I gained in those early years. Wow. But then, you know, this is where sort of practical life and my life intervened because <laughs> it was hard to make a living. And like I was 25 years old and I was the assistant director of an art school. I was like, like where's the, where's, where does this go and how does this work out? So I, one day in a fit of peak, I took the LSAT. And then one day, <laughs> A second day later, much later on, in a, fit, a second fit of peak, I opened like an application request from Washington University in St. Louis, which was the oh. only other city in the U.S. that I knew because I grew up in New York. But I was born in St. Louis and my parents were, and I spent a lot of my summers there and my grandparents were there and all my extended family was there. So I said, fine. And I just sort of overnight decided to pivot into law school. Wow. And my parents were, it's not that, it's not that unheard of because my parents were both attorneys mm -hmm. and actually my parents were both former regulators and you can probably see where this is going. Uh oh and, um, were they insurance regulators or what kind of regulator my mother was a director of enforcement for the stock exchange so it's a securities regulator oh wow and my father was a founding regulator at the cftc but oh. then in, in securities and that's part of the reg ed journey right mm -hmm. so yes law school graduated from law school and by then my father had started a continuing education business, which was migrating to the internet as it would. And was that focused on securities at that point in well, time? First, well, secure, secure, first commodities, futures, right? NFA regs. Then it was securities regs, which was firm element. And then, of course, you know, most of our clients are, are duly licensed with insurance as well. So then the sophistication of, right. of you know, everybody wanted good national nationally accredited insurance continuing education so we did that as well mm -hmm. so that was fun but the real um excitement there were a couple of things that were exciting about this right because i could have i mean i thought i was well i digress but i went my final year my final semester of law school i went to work at the judiciary committee of the uh, house of representatives and this was during the impeachment trial of clinton and wow. it was a really interesting time to be in D.C. And I thought, and I actually got, I got two offers to work in D.C. And I thought that would be great. But then I went to do sort of summer with my, at my family, you know, startup. And it was actually incredibly exciting. That's really what it was. And I think it put together sort of that background I had in administration and marketing and what, what I now realize is sort of a form of product management. And, and and put that together with, um, you know, like 
what the law school will give you, which is uh, an ability to, to not be afraid of regulation and not be afraid of complex, wonky subject matter. And I think those two things together really united. And when and we were doing really exciting things, and that's when we began to make our the, the products that we're best known for. Yes, of course, we're still known for continuing education, and we are the leader in that for both securities and insurance. But we also began to really learn um, that how much of our industry needed to be enhanced through automation, right? Think about like what was going on in 2000 and 2001 and two, and what people were using is in a paper format and how easy it would be, how important and critical, not easy, it was not easy, how, 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 how easy it is to make the decision to move to, um, to move stuff online, right? And to move it into a way that where automation and, and, and good archiving, good record keeping, good workflow, good end user interfaces, like how important that was. And could we apply them to more and more processes that affected our, our clients? And so I guess that is the, that is sort of the arch of, of the story of how I got here. Well, that's an amazing story, an amazing journey to get to where you are and um, not only your firm, but also, you know, the other tech players who have, you know, managed to, you know, sort of see the trend where the trend was going as far as managing regulations, you know, as things got more, um, you know, widespread, say nationwide, um, in the past, perhaps business was more localized, maybe in one or two states, but then as things opened up between states and then you have these multi-state um, companies doing business. I don't know if you can recall back in the day, it was nearly impossible to do that <laughs> without mm-hmm. having separate organizations. Um, but through the technology and of course the changes in, in regs and statutes, or at least around insurance, um, the technology that um, you know, folks like yourself and Alistair's group and um, our Vertifor people, all those folks who have been in the industry and kept up with those um, needs have made it possible, I think, for a firm to manage large volumes of licenses. I know for our firm, especially, it is, uh, well, we would not be able to manage. Firm is, your firm is a prime example, right, of how much, how much complexity there is. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, not only in the business. Another, we've been working on this on, on evolving software to manage the, these requirements for 20 years now, right? Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. you say 20 years ago and you'd already been a client of the product. And like, if you look at how much intellectual capital we have put into making, solving, solving a problem and, and a problem that I feel like, <laughs> I feel like we have more, to, there's so much more to do, right? I mean, there is. This is what inspires me. Yeah. I think it's also why groups like Sila are so critical to the yes. work we are doing. I mean, you know this, and Alistair, you certainly know this. The the licensing function for for particularly for these large firms, but for everyone, is non-competitive, right? You're not you don't gain a competitive advantage by being right. sure. You may gain some operational efficiency, and you may gain some speed to market efficiency, which you could are, you could ideally state is a competitive advantage, but it's not really. So if we're all in this, if we're, if it's not competitive, then we're all in it together. Mm-hmm. And I feel that, that I feel the work we've done for the last 20 years 
around workflow, around archiving and record retention and in, in, in generating a rule base that turns into automation. I feel like that is, okay, I feel like that's half the problem solved. And now I look and I realize that there's still these very large, and Diana, you know this better than either of us, there's still these very large licensing centers that are, that are bridging the gap in efficiency between the regulators and the states yes. and the state databases and the mm-hmm. firm and the multiple entities within the firm. And, and, and of course, in the middle of it, we sit and try to solve that. And to me, I don't think, you know, I'm often asked why I'm doing this at 20, 23 years later, because that story that I just told you ended 20 years ago, right? Like, how can I still be doing this? And we've had a, we've had a corporate owner. We've had uh, three private equity owners since then. How can I still be doing the same work? And it's because the, the work is not done. And it won't be done until, 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 licensing or credentialing right is solved at the broadest possible level for the largest number of entities and and individual aid like there it's not something that should be problematic for firms it's something that should be super easy so i think we have to there's more work for all of us to do absolutely it uh it's never ending and it's never boring there's always something new to solve or maybe something old that you have to keep chipping away at so in terms of your timeline for when this will be solved um i like how you put it because i was going to say yeah it'll be solved when the cows come home no 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 no, no. <laughs> so you're going to keep doing this for quite a while <laughs> yeah but there's a couple of things that have and, and, you know, I remember the first time I went to Sila, right? I remember being there. I remember we were still just a CE provider. We weren't doing much in terms of credentialing and licensing. There were other providers, Alice, do you remember, that re- really dominated the space, but it was with very old software. And we hadn't really sort of come to where we are now. But I, but what has happened in the last, in the last, uh, Four years, our licensing and appointment and registration offering has doubled in size in terms of usage. Mm-hmm. What that means to me is, is twofold. Number one, we no longer have to convince people that this is a good idea to outsource, right? Like the the change in the change in culture at our client firms and the change in frankly in executives at some sometimes change in general approach to how to solve the credentialing and licensing problem for agents, including onboarding and stuff like that, right? Like mm-hmm. and, and automated BI, like all that stuff. That isn't, that's not the question anymore. The question now for us, so that's great. That's why so many people are moving to do this work. But from my perspective, what does that mean? It means more R&D, that we can invest because we have a, criti- a critical mass of client users, more features, more, you know, technology differentiation, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what, what, you know, what capabilities are available in the commercial cloud that we can use to, that we don't have to invent? I mean, Alistair, you don't think about this all the time too. Like, why are we making reporting packages? Why am I inventing, you know, new workflows? No, 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 no. 
I want to solve the exact problem, but I don't want to build the tools to solve it. Right. So that's the fun part. But if you need to have enough clients and client mass to just take some portion of their subscription and, and, and invest it, and you need to have large enough enterprise clients that can do ROI based investment with you also that can buy a new module that you create. Otherwise, why make it? Right. 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 And I think we get a lot of that, John, and, you know, from what Sila provides, right? Sila is such an interesting place where it's, where it's community. It brings together regulators. It brings together, you know, service partners like, you know, our organizations. It brings together, you know, the industry itself. Really just talk and, and understand what the common issues are. How do we address those common issues? And then it brings an expectation of how a service provider, right, can really provide customizations or, or innovations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> innovations is a better word than customization. Exactly. You're right. Innovations <laughs> to the space, right? You know, to make the industry run more efficiently, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think there's that industry expectation as well that why can't we have better tools, right? We're not at the paper and pencil stage anymore, right? Why aren't there automations and innovations and ways that we can drive efficiency? You know, it's out there in the market. Why can't they be applied here, right? And I think just being able to be in this environment, in this community, where open and frank discussions can happen, things get, you know, bandied about, and results can be provided, really provides the value of where I see Sila being to all its participants, yeah, you know, I, think, I wonder, John, what value um, from your perspective, right? Sort of the the um, converse of what Alistair just said. Um, your firm um, and a couple of other um, vendor firms have a large presence as far as membership in Sila. So is that um, what, I mean, obviously there's an investment in that, right? Because everybody has to pay a membership. So what do you um, think the value well, of having just that, right? So it's not just the, we pay a membership, we serve on boards, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. We have multiple experts. You know, Reg Ed has uh, 290 employees. We only do this, right? We're not some huge Mm -hmm. back office provider for insurance applications. We only do compliance, right? This is it, compliance and licensing registration. So what we have to do is be really judicious about where we put our efforts. And Sila is our most, one of our most, if not our most, important event of the year mm-hmm. and it really almost doubles from my perspective as a secondary user conference or client advisory board so you know diana that every time there's we have silo we always have a user conference before yeah. the day before it's the only way that we can get that critical mass of clients together it's the only way that we can connect to them um is in that is in that event and we sorely missed it in the last two years and we're very, in, although I think Sila and the industry as a whole has done a great job in creating alternative ways for us to get together, which we appreciate, and serving on those committees, whether it's the, you know, we, we have a leader on the continuing education committee, we have someone on the regulatory committee, like those are really important, um, there's a really important ways for us to both learn and to contribute, as Alistair yeah. says, to the innovation that we can collectively do, but then the event itself, the SILA conference is a critical, is our most important event, right? And that's the place that we can get our clients together, show them our roadmap, show them our innovation, our, our innovation arc. And Alistair, to, you, know, you know, you can understand this as well. Like putting all these clients together has resulted in, 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 in 
in innovations beyond what you were just saying, right? Like if all this great tech is out there, why can't I have some of it? So we, Diana Smart Appointments came out of that, right? This ability to, to appoint a, a point of, in association with doing business, which makes all the sense in the world, or the right place, the right, the right agent, the right license, and the right product. Out of out of the advisory boards that we use, that we met at, at Sala, comes our smart terminations, which just came out two years ago, which makes sure that you don't have people sitting on your roster that don't need to be. Like these are these are next gen automations that deliver huge ROI. If you or or, or you know our, the the product that we do more than than anything in the industry is our nipper alerts right so the nipr alert product which makes sure that your client your clients are synced with the nipr all that comes out of silo working groups like not silo sponsored but in collaboration with silo membership and often presented rolled out and featured at the silo annual conference so you can't live without you can't live without an association like this yeah and do, work, and do meaningful work like we're doing without being able to get it you know why build that stuff if nobody's going to use it right like don't bother no absolutely well and you mentioned silo pivoting and you know during this pandemic time and you know finding a way to still reach out to members and provide you know information and value what was the impact if any on your business did you have to do a big pivot or was it just easy to continue doing what you do Hmm. So that's a great question, which, you know, is, the, uh, is top of mind. I am, I'm, I'm constantly asking anyone the same. So here's the thing. We, in the last few years, we had already begun to pivot into a hybrid model of work from home slash work from anywhere and, and, and physical presence. So we'd already started that. And one of the reasons is, as you can imagine, we hire for expertise. So who do we hire? We we love to hire, you know, anyone with regulatory experience. This wonky, this wonky uh, ecosystem that we all float in, right? It attracts a certain type of people that seem to want to work in it for life. I think the three <laughs> of us might be examples of that, right? But there's thousands more of us, and so those, but those, I can't tell, I can't determine where those people are geographically, and I'd be a fool not to hire them. So, you know, when if you look at um, if you look at the people that work with us, right, someone like Chris Hegland, who's in Michigan, or someone like Margie Weber, who's um, in, in Kansas City, like you're not going to, like you're not going to get people like that and make the move across the country. They have lives. So you've got to make sure that you get the best talent and you can't demand that they be co-located with you, mm-hmm. right? So, so we'd already begun that. So when the, so when the pandemic came, um, you know, we didn't, like anybody else, we didn't know what to do. I remember, like, I flew down on that Tuesday, and we had a town hall meeting, and we were like, look, we're going to do what's right, and but we'll stay open as long as we can, you know, we'll keep the office open, because no one had the idea that we just wouldn't have an office, yeah. mm-hmm. and, like, the next day, we're like, oh, we got to close this office and get out of here. <laughs> like, I was on the plane out of there. So, like, it was, like, it's, you know, it, and we had closed the office the following day. So, like, it is, you all remember how that went down, and in truth, here's what's crazy we do a lot of, you know, having clients like you, like you, Diana, you have a, you're, you're subject to an enormous amount of scrutiny about your business processes and your security. Mm-hmm. And one of ours was, one of our, something we've always taken seriously is business continuity planning. And our, the, in two of the last five years, we had had pandemic exercises. Like oh. mm-hmm. 
standard thing. So we had like, we had already made an investment in laptops for everyone. Mm-hmm. So 290 of those people got, you know, if they didn't already have a laptop, we issued, they were immediately issued. Mm-hmm. We VPN access and we had all the protocols that we needed to securely work from home and to safely work from home. And so we didn't miss, uh, we didn't miss a, a, a beat. And not only that, in truth, these last two years have been our largest sales years. So how, how I mean, that defies, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? Which is like, you don't have to, people want, people want this. They want to buy things from us I'm honored, but people want to outsource stuff. And they didn't stop wanting to outsource stuff just because they were working from anywhere, right? And once people caught their breath in the first half of 2020 thing, you know, there was a huge backlog and people were anxious to get going with what we have. And I think maybe you guys have seen this too. Maybe the type of work we're doing, like the onboarding work that we're doing now, that might be, that, that might be driven by a further appetite among the industry to continue to outsource and innovate, right? Which is perhaps a result of this. I don't know. Cause that, that's sometimes how I think about it, right? It's hard to say why this is happening, but our company did well. We did well. Now it's 2022, almost midway through. And I think the question is now what, right? I don't think we're going back. We're not going back five days a week, but all of my employees, all of my employee surveys say, no, thank you. My personal view is that everybody gained like some amount of time. Let's say everybody gained 45 minutes each way. Diana, you probably gained 45 minutes to an hour each way. I, I gained I, four hours every day. That's right. All right. You're, that's right. You're way out. Yeah. Okay. So I, so that time I feel you probably divided between your employer and yourself. And I think you can get, you, you know, the employer can get back the time you had for them, but I don't think you're going to get it back from yourself. Right. right. Like that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think, and the truth is we all have now everyone has to, if you can work from anywhere, then you can work for anyone. And we, you all have, our industry is very large and, and, and all of a sudden there's open opportunities. So you have to, we have to cater to this. Mm-hmm. What confronts me as CEO and my leadership team every day is how to, how to create, how to perpetuate, not create, but how to perpetuate the culture that has made us so successful for these yeah. 20 years, how to still feel like it's, I mean, it's not, a, it's a family managed business, I suppose, but how to make it feel like it's not a family run owned business anymore. So like, but how to make, but we've always been able to maintain that client first culture, um, personal touch wherever possible. Mm-hmm. How do I keep that going with people that have never met us, right? Like I have people that have never met us. So I think what we're going to do is, is, we need to be pivoting to in-person once a quarter it, minimum for all of us. Like you've got to now solve the problem mm-hmm. of how do you know and perpetuate your culture. And that's where your effort needs to be. So you, it's great that you gained all this time, but you have to give some of that time back to how to know your colleagues. Oh, absolutely. I was a no very answer to that question, but like it's much, much on my mind, I would think. So I'm probably yeah, it's got to be pretty weird too for, I think for somebody to just, I've interviewed virtually and started the job virtually. And, and like you said, never having any kind of face-to-face meetings with anyone at the firm. It's got to be a little strange. How, how, 
how do they know this is this is not just any old software company, right? <laughs> exactly. Because, like we've been doing the same passionate thing for 23 years, and we've grown so much, and we started with nothing, with no employees, and now we have 300, and we started with you know one client, and now we have a thousand. Like how do we how do we tell that story mm-hmm. to somebody who just just like okay, this is my job today, and I zoom with these same six people. We have to get it out there. I think the other thing that we have, to, and we have started some things, by the way, we've started very, we've started a much more rigorous onboarding process for our employees mm-hmm. than we ever have had before, right? Mm-hmm. Before it was like, come in and learn and jump on some client calls and sit next to somebody smart who's been here for a hundred years <laughs> and you'll learn all this, right? But that's not how it is anymore. We've become much more formal about it. We, my leadership team and I speak to every new employee as part of like an onboarding class. We, um, I try to explain to them like, why we do this work right because i think this is you two know this but i don't you two know this but i don't know if everybody knows it sila tells this story right so but the truth is we are working for the good guys we are making i mean you know alistair and i diana are working to make you a more effective good guy and to make what are we are trying to protect the investments of our of of Main Street, right? Sure, there's a lot of wealthy investments we're protecting, and they deserve to be protected too. But in truth, if you look at the core of the of the of the product set that our broader industry, right, securities and insurance, are selling, it's it's often retirement planning, or in your case, diamonds asset protection, like you know, mm-hmm. physical assets, or many other types. Mm-hmm. And I just feel that like that story needs to be told. Why are why are you doing this? You're doing this to protect people and you're doing this in many cases to ferret out bad actors or bad actions or accidental actions or, you know, protecting by, by educating, by providing continuing education, by ensuring credentialing is properly done, by ensuring that outside activities are monitored and the disciplinary actions are, are monitored and, and even things like, you know, the nipper alerts, keeping that as real time as possible, right? Yeah, yeah. In, and and finding that finding that needle in the haystack and allowing our clients to do more accept work by exception rather than report running is important work and has an end result that's really positive. So that's I think why that's why you got to get to these people and explain why. I mean, I don't we don't have to explain it to each other because it's obvious. But I think if you're this is your first job in our space, how yeah. why why is you know. It's your cocktail conversation or your airplane conversation. Like, why is the work we do actually interesting? Yeah. It's and not important. because Colorado changed their CE law from 12 hours. <laughs> That's not what's <laughs> most interesting about the work we do. What is interesting about the work we do is what its end result can produce. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's a much bigger picture to this whole insurance industry compliance, you know, gamut. Absolutely, John. I love that you explained the why as well, because that is so important. And I think when people understand why they're doing what they're doing, you know, what is the end goal? What what is the what does it matter what I do? It really makes a big difference. I think people become very invested in what they do. And um, I think it just makes for somebody to strive towards excellence. And um, we do the same thing, John, as we with new employees, we explain the whys. Um, you know, why is this important? What does it yep. mean? What does it ultimately translate to? 
So totally agree. Do you feel, I have one last question for you around your, your teams and the remote environment. Do you feel like collaboration, because in your field, Alistair, you as well, um, with the technology folks, um, you know, you always hear that, you know, they like to collaborate and have meetings of the mind and all these brilliant ideas come out around the table in a room. Do you feel like anything um, of that sort has been lost at all with the remote environment or is collaboration still you know, as, as strong as it would be if it was in person? I, I listen, I'm a little old school, right? So <laughs> I do believe there's value to being in a room with people. I just mm-hmm. do, right? Mm-hmm. Although certainly great collaboration can occur in this, you know, in via Zoom, right? And to be quite honest, if I had if I had to do this over again, like if I had to do the last ten years over again, I I would have been an early adopter of Zoom, right? And and ensure and and, and save myself a lot of like holiday ins and you know, like, <laughs> no receipts and and East Coast delays, right? Like that I could like that. Duh, that would have been a great way. That, as much as this technology has benefited us, aren't we like? I don't know that I don't know that anything great is invented on Zoom, right? Like, right. to do, Diana, to do the, that, to answer your question, to do the great work that we do to make the best innovation, you need to be in a room with your colleagues yeah. and in a room with your clients. Yes. Right? Like, if you, if, I mean, if you think of the number of hours that we've spent, Diana, with you and Danny in a room, and what and that is what's resulted in great innovation. It's not a Zoom check-in every month to make sure that your account is running smoothly. That's maintenance. Right. Right. I think it was amazing for maintenance. But I think and I think we've run on a lot of fumes over the last two years and two months. But I think now not not fumes. We've run on a lot of gas in the tank, right? Like we already knew how to collaborate. We were already together. We already had a head we already had a head start on on collaboration this uh, this way however we have to get back to we have to get to back to some level of in, of in person we're redoing our offices in raleigh north carolina and frankly we don't need as much space because we don't need a queue for everybody but the focus also is to make sure that we have collaborative meeting experience right. what we need right. to come in for two days and have once a month and have meeting with their team we are driving it from the top down. We need more cross-disciplinary teams because everyone wants to meet with their team because of the people they talk to every day on Zoom. But really what we need to do is how do we talk to somebody else who isn't on your team? Yeah. So I think that's the, you have to create a little more opportunity for random, for random interactions. Yeah. Because okay. you all know this, this is, Zoom is incredibly efficient, but it's very transactional. Yes. I like to think of it as structured, John. It's structured time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Always like to me, my most, I mean, not, not all, but many of my meetings. And I, and I always, I always question whether it's my role or whether, you know, why is it? But it's sort of like, a, it's often checklist and follow up and mm-hmm. status reporting. Right. And that is not, that's a great way to sort of run a business, but it's not a great way to, to continue to invent things. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 and I always prided myself on being the chief innovation officer for the firm, and I want to keep that role, and, I, and it, therefore it is incumbent upon me. But I also have so many great talented people that you know, like 
Ethan Floyd and Christian Jake, like people that are very involved in Sila, actually yeah. listen to yes. the clients to find out what it is that we need to do. And um, we need to do more of that. And then we need to tra- continue to translate it in that virtuous circle of idea for efficiency into product and deployment into client, right? Like that's a very, it's yeah. a recipe for success. It's a recipe for client satisfaction and it's a recipe for continued purpose in the work we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, John, we've taken a lot of your time. We really thank you. But before we let you go, we have one final question that we always ask all of our guests, which is looking back on your career, looking back on the road that you've been on, John, what advice would you give to your younger self? Just starting out in your career. Just starting out. <laughs> I'm going to give my advice to my youngest self, which is to keep an open mind, right? Mm-hmm. So I really, I mean, when I, when I, I just, I, I, I mapped out my early career for you. But I believed that I could only do one kind of thing, right? And it wasn't software and it wasn't regulatory. And later in life, I learned that not to be true. So become more, I think I was so specific in my learning. And don't get me wrong, it's benefited me greatly, right? Like I'm really happy studying something like the history of art makes one into a critical thinker. It it gives one language and writing skills that you might not have before. And certainly law school refines that. But just learn as much as you can. And don't think that something like insurance, I mean, no, I don't know that there's a 17-year-old out there that thinks, like, I am going into insurance. <laughs> right? Like, that, is, you know, one, that is some sexy cocktail talk. But in truth, like, that isn't, that's such, a, that's such a myopic way to look at it. So expand your horizons. Learn everything you can about everything you can. Read every section of the New York Times. Not just the not just <laughs> not just the tech and uh, arts, right? So like, just be very open, and I think that's what I would give to everyone. And you know, the truth is this: like, if if and never never stop learning, right? Like, go to school for as long as you can afford, but don't borrow a million dollars to do it, right? But go to school for as long as you can. And then when you, then when you get out of it, keep learning and keep opening your mind to something interesting. Yeah, that's great advice. It was a pleasure talking to you both. Oh my gosh, we're so grateful. I've seen you both and this was fun. Thank you so much. Will we see you in Seattle, John? In the fall? Awesome. Can't wait. Cannot wait. I've never been more excited to get out. I I know. Like I don't know how long that'll last, but right now I'm one hundred percent. a great event, shall we? To make sure I'm sure someone's already on it, but let's make sure that we have the best possible client event and the most fun we can have because we deserve it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we really want to thank you for taking the time. We know you are an incredibly busy individual, so we really appreciate it. So it's always fun speaking with you and I, I certainly look forward to catching up with you in person soon. Me too. <laughs> if there's anything that you or your or or anyone at your firm needs, at either of your firms, we're here to help. And you know, if your listeners have an idea for an innovation that should be made, that's what we're here for. We would love to hear it. Great, John. Thank you so much. We'll Thank talk you. soon, and we'll see you in Seattle. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, Diana, that was another great pod. We'd like to thank John for being on with us, right? That was, he spent a lot of time in, and we really appreciate his, you know, insight into, you know, the securities and uh, insurance industry. Yeah, absolutely. Such an insightful and um, interesting journey that he's had. And we're certainly grateful that he took the time to share that with us. And we look forward to perhaps seeing him at the next SILA conference. That's right. Uh, and for all of you, uh, we hope you enjoyed it. If you guys have any questions for us, please reach out. Our email is silaspeaks at sila.org. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at, at silaspeaks. Yes, and thank you all for listening. We hope everybody is well and staying safe. And we hope to see you all very soon. The materials in, Seattle, in this podcast are intended then, to provide we'll a general or hear you of the issues contained podcast. herein and are not Goodbye. intended, nor should they be construed, to provide specific legal or regulatory guidance or advice. If you have any questions or issues of a specific nature, you should consult with appropriate legal or regulatory counsel to review the specific circumstances involved. The information or opinions communicated in this podcast are not necessarily opinions of SILA and the SILA Foundation. Thank you.